I was in the streets all the time. I, I got I was getting kicked out of school, and when I got kicked out of school, it was like, where should I go now? Like so many incarcerated youth, Ricky Gators tells a familiar story of repeated trouble in the classroom. Often called the school-to-prison pipeline, exclusionary and zero-tolerance disciplinary policies that remove students from classes statistically increase the likelihood they will drop out and face jail time. Welcome back, I'm Ed Madison, and in this edition of Public Plea, we look at the issue of school discipline. Two of Ricky Gator's closest friends at the Rogue Valley Youth Corrections Facility are Mileto Clark and Marquise Murphy. Like Ricky, they had challenging childhoods and hard times in school. I grew up in like two different places. You know, I didn't speak English at the time at all, so it made it difficult, so it like, you. For Mulu, as his friends called him, it was a matter of culture shock. He was born in Ethiopia, where he remembers panhandling from age five to help feed the family. At age nine, his biological mom died of AIDS. Mulu and his two sisters were adopted a year later by a white American woman who brought them to live in Portland. You literally are like an alien, you know? And uh, I believe this was like in the fifth grade. For me, it was, like it was really hard. I can't understand what anybody was saying. Uh, or the writing. Taking advantage of this naive newcomer, a classmate played a trick on him. He taught me the retarded sign, and our school, they had uh, the mentally challenged kids and stuff, and the hard of hearing kids, and so, it was like, it was not the school you want to do that to. So they were like, hey, Mulu, you know? And so I'm like, hey, look. And as soon as I did that, they were like, they looked at the teacher, and they're like, hey, Miss Gwen, look what he's doing, you know? And it was like Miss Gwen, she was like my favorite English teacher. Uh, and she pulled me into the hall and she was like, she was hella mad. So she yelling at me and like she like, she's mad so she like, but I had no clue what she was saying. All I knew was like, I got set up. <laughs> like I couldn't explain to my mom like what happened, you know? Like I don't think I told my mom until like years later. And so, because of that, so now it's like, it creates that like trust issue, you know? And so after that, like, if anybody kind of like uh, looked at me weird or like my, at least, let's say like my behavior has changed, you know? Like I started picking up like behavioral issues and like being physical with people. Ethiopia, Mulu's native country, was never colonized. So he knew very little about race, discrimination, and their impact on American history. I think it was like sixth grade or seventh grade, we were watching Roots. And this is before like my understanding that uh, the importance of Roots, you know? And I'm sitting in the back watching Roots and you got some of the kids crying and you got the teacher crying and Miss Green. And I like, and I'm just like, it's just a movie, you know? But this is before like I knew anything like uh, racial issues or anything like that, or before you, I didn't even know about slavery, and me and me and like my family being white, uh, me and my sisters being black, uh, like I didn't understand it. I don't, you know. Many of Mulu's peers didn't quite know what to make of him. Somebody one time told me it's like you ain't even black, you know. I don't forget who it was, but I'm just like, to me in my head, I'm like, 
I'm as black as you can get. Like, I'm from a certain Africa. Like, you can't get any more black than this. Marquise, or Queasy as his friends call him, was born in Portland, but felt like an outsider for a different reason. He's biracial and fair-skinned, which cost him acceptance in two peer groups. So like, I be with all my black friends, they're like, oh, you white, whatever, you know? It's like, I'm not black enough. But it's like, when I'm with my, like, with white people, like, I'm not white enough. So like, you stuck in the middle. And then so it's like, but like, when my mom get on the phone and like, they call like, ooh, white, whatever, they wouldn't think my mom was white until she showed up. So it's like, I was always like, stuck right there in that middle. And he says some of his teachers treated him differently. I had a specific teacher. So like in first and second grade and then third and fourth grade and then our third, fourth and fifth grade was one class and then first and second grade was one class. But my first and second grade teacher, I feel like I would like to say she didn't have it out for me, but it definitely felt that way. Because there were sometimes like someone happened and she automatically be like, all oh, queens go to the office. I was like, I ain't even do it. But like I understood now like when I think back, like of course, because I was always doing something. So of course she would think it's me. But our principal, her name was Miss Black. It's kind of funny now, but but she was actually super cool with me, and she was always trying to help me out and stuff. So like, she was super lenient with me. Like every time I got in trouble, she'd be like, "All right, we just going in school suspension, so you can still be here and do your schoolwork and stuff, trying to help me out." We know from research that that school to prison pipeline is a very real thing. Ron Denise is a University of Oregon researcher who studies disparities in school disciplinary practices. Students who receive harsh and dis disproportionate exclusionary discipline are much more likely to drop out of school, have academic failure, end up incarcerated, um, end up using substances, suicide rates go up. And so all of those negative outcomes are associated with the treatment of students within school systems. So I usually get in trouble at school for like not sitting still. Uh, but middle school, I got I got suspended a couple of times. Uh, I think like a few for like physical altercations and being like disruptive in class. When we talk about exclusionary discipline, it's not just suspensions and expulsions, kind of what people typically think of when they think of exclusion from school, but anything from low-level exclusions of like kicking kids out of class or sending them to the office and them sitting there, maybe in in-school suspension or detention, missing a lot of instructional time. Natalie Hollibaugh taught grade school before attending law school at Lewis and Clark College and joining Queasy's defense team. She says teaching was tough. So I taught high school science and middle school science at different schools actually across the country. Um, and I pretty quickly realized that the school to prison pipeline was very obvious. Um, and in my role as a teacher, I was required essentially to perpetuate it and perpetuate that harm. And I realized pretty quickly that I couldn't not, I couldn't do my job as I was being expected to do by administrators while simultaneously you know, not perpetuating that harm. And as much as I was doing my best to um, avoid that and to support students and to call out things that I thought were unjust and to call out racist behavior by colleagues and recognize that within myself and what I needed to do to be um, not biased and to reduce my own you know, systemic things that I'd grown up thinking were true. Uh, and I got really frustrated and realized it was kind of like where the rubber meets the road and I couldn't do that anymore. The term implicit bias refers to our inclination to act on the basis of prejudice and stereotypes without consciously intending to do so. 
when teachers are asked to respond very quickly to say problematic behavior, they're much more likely to act on a bias and disproportionately um, uh, harshly discipline a student of color over a white student. And implicit bias may not align with their values in the sense where they might not believe and view students of color to be worse than their white peers or uh, more problematic than their white peers, but they act out on a bias in a split second decision that feeds that disproportionate discipline that, that harshly impacts students and their outcomes. So I worked specifically in schools where um, what you know, what the system calls high-risk youth, uh, what we would recognize as under-resourced communities. And it wasn't unusual for students to be arrested in my classroom uh, without my consent or, you know, just having law enforcement enter my classroom to remove students. And it could be for legal, legal reasons or it could be just misbehavior that, you know, for the most part was not misbehavior being recognized in, you know, their white peers. And it could be such small disruptions that I as a teacher chose to handle on my own and not involve administration when I could and other folks you know weren't doing that and then so often a lot of the students I had were also you know coming from under-resourced communities so places where they didn't have a lot of supports and then they would come into a school that immediately would question their behaviors or so quick to label students specifically youth of color as ADHD or oppositional defiant disorder and I was just watching these kids get these lab labels that were so serious for behavior that I literally would watch their white peers do the same thing um, and so it was really frustrating because I'd be encouraged to go to administration and I had to sort of not do that um, and try to find my own ways to support these students. One of the most important things is understanding that if a child's basic, basic needs are not being met, if they are hungry, if they have not slept, if their family is in turmoil, if they, have not, if they do not have stable housing, students will not be able to emotionally self-regulate in times of high stress. It's physiologically impossible. The brain cannot do that. Right? And so for us, being able to meet some of those basic needs as best as we can when students come to school is so critical. That is why you're seeing free breakfast programs throughout districts across our state, for example, and many, many other states across the country, or free lunch programs, or schools moving away from punishing kids for falling asleep in class. You know, the fact is for a lot of students, getting to school, knowing the numerous barriers that they have before they walk in the door is, is a triumph in and of itself. And so to take a student who is not able to sleep at home for a variety of reasons and then kick them out of class after they've worked so hard to make it to school just feeds into the cycle of treating children like they don't belong and they don't fit. Oh, I see it every day with my own two sons. Janelle Bynum is the only black member of Oregon's House of State Representatives. Here's a, a really interesting example. So I have two girls, two boys. And when school started kind of coming back into session where they were going in, I started receiving um, attendance notices. And I only received them on my boys. And I thought it was odd because they were both in class. Maybe they were late. But I had to push back on the school to say, if they were there, they were there. It's COVID, you know. <laughs> Let it go. Of all of the things that we have to worry about right now, 
one or two minutes late is, is not a big deal. What I found really interesting with that was how pointed and how clear the pattern was with my boys. Not a peep about the girls. And so to me, it's how much grace do my boys get? And are you giving that grace to everyone else and denying them? I suppose so, because I can't imagine that you are sending those very same notices to every parent. I can't imagine. And when I started pushing back, the notices disappeared. I've never met an educator who said that they came into the fields of education to suspend kids and kick kids out of class, right? People are drawn to education because they care about children, they care about learning, and they love it. And they want to help kids thrive and succeed. And sometimes we have to remind our educators of that humanity aspect. There's also been this perpetuation over years of these negative false stereotypes that somehow families of color or families living in poverty or those in different socioeconomic brackets value education less than others. And that is in fact not true. That we have found from numerous studies that single parent households, that families living in poverty, they value education. They want their kids in school. They want their kids to, to thrive. They want their kids to go to college. There is no devaluing of education. We find in studies that parents who did not graduate high school or parents that did not go to college want education even more so for their children. They see that as their ticket. They see that as their ticket of breaking the cycle that they have found their families in. And so this view that if a child comes to school without their basic needs being met and somehow the educators can't get a hold of their parents, somehow these families don't value education, they don't care if their kids are in school, that just feeds into the stereotype to justify kicking kids out, justify getting rid of them, justifying this narrative that they don't even care when that is in fact not true. But what about other societal factors that may influence behavior? Some black artists shy away from discussions about the possible adverse effects of their work. But a fact remains, messages about staying in school, earning good grades, and going to college are not prevalent in popular music, and particularly hip hop, which often features hypermasculinity, misogyny, and gun violence. Ricky Gator says there's a definite influence. Music motivates people. Music, you know, takes people to different places that they've probably never been. And when I say that, like, you listen to that and all you hear about is like killing this, killing that you might feel motivated to some stuff like that. Kimberly Dixon is a community advocate and agrees. Unfortunately, I do. And I was, it's not because I'm against hip hop, but I, I think that if, if folks took a look at the history of hip hop, hip hop used to tell stories. Hip hop used to inform. Hip hop used to uplift. And I say used to because most of what I have heard in more recent years, that is not what's happening. It is more of a promotion of, uh, of a degradation, I believe, in terms of society and how we move specifically as people of color. And I think we have to take ownership of that. I think we have to be accountable for that. 
I'm not saying everything should be talking about, you know, flowers, roses and trees. But we've uh, in some ways, I, I wonder if folks think about your your responsibility, your your realm of responsibility that you have. Yes, you should be able to, you know, uh, make money and make the music you want. And then also consider what you are doing. Victims advocate Renita Sutton minces few words on this subject. You look at television like these hip hop shows and they show black women as such a, such a horrible way. You know, the way that they speak, the way that they dress, they make, they glamorize stripping of black women. Like stripping is the thing to do. So you would get all these young girls, that's what they want to do. It's, I believe it's what we're doing to each other. Even in the way that we speak, you, use, you hear so many people now that are speaking as if they haven't been educated at all. I'm one of those people that absolutely hate that N-word. I, I would never understand why we call each other that. But you look at the records, you look at movies, and it's constant. Like why? Why, why would you ever call yourself that or call anyone else that. We're better than that, we're not that. But it is so common that, and I just think it's horrible. While acknowledging the influence of music, Ricky stopped short of saying recording artists are to blame. I can't really say that they are, but it's like, I feel like it's the people that listens to the music, you know? Like, you have that choice, you know, everybody had that choice. It's not like picking the gun. Like they making things that's making them rich, you know, and if that's making them rich, kind of like, it's kind of sad to say, but let them do them. Like people that came from poverty, nothing. And that's like their way to like feel good about themselves and make music, you know, and they making money for it. It's like, let them do them. But it's like, you could be rapping about different things though. Representative Bynum suggests that the answer about music's influence is nuanced. You know, they, I think that just goes back to the question, does art imitate life or vice versa? I mean, my kids have heard all of that music, but it doesn't, in, you know, incline them to be violent. Uh, I think in the music itself is an expression of pain. That's what, that's what I hear and it's an expression of, um, in some ways, a fantasy. But again, what does your everyday reality look like? And so what, what do we do, if you will, since the preponderance of the hip hop culture, right, rests within black and brown people, right? As an artist, when we think of slavery, what would happen if you thought about slavery, government-sanctioned human bondage, and where you're at as an artist and what you produce? Do you own your music? Do you, do you own the rights to that? Are you the one who's in the driver's seat with what you produce and where it goes? It's something to think about. Again, responsibility, accountability. We as community members can never forget that as well. And if we were to open up our eyes and educate ourselves more about what we actually do have control over, where would we be? In the next edition of Public Plea, 
after nearly 30 years, has legislation like Measure 11 delivered on its promises? I think Oregon, in, in fact, statistically, has gotten much safer. All of these punishing laws nationally and locally um, here in Oregon and in every state haven't made us safer. Um, what it has done is ruined lives and futures for youth, young people, um, and communities, families. And we explore the question of whether new knowledge about brain development research should impact how we judge juveniles. We know from the brain science don't have a, a fully developed executive function. We have to take that into consideration. Legally, we have to take that into consideration. You can look at these images of a stressed out brain or the brain of a neglected child and a healthy developing brain, and it doesn't take a neuroscientist to see the difference. Well, I think it's just another weapon being used, and mostly it's hokum. I'm neither a lawyer nor a scientist. I don't know. Uh, I really don't. But here's what I do know, is that science is a moving target. All this on the next edition of Public Plea. Thanks for listening to Public Plea. This program was independently produced by alumni and current students at the University of Oregon School of Journalism and Communication in partnership with Oregon Public Broadcasting, The Oregonian, and Willamette Week. The views and opinions expressed by our interview subjects are their own and in no way reflect those of the University of Oregon, our partners, or their employees. For more information about this project, go to publicplea.net. I'm Ed Madison.